0: You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change.
1: Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori, I'm Ross Kenyon, I'm the creative editor and one of the co-founders of Nori. Today I have with me one of my colleagues, Nick Van Osdal, who's a writer at Nori and also the creator of Keep Cool, the climate tech newsletter, podcast, job board, probably a few other things I'm forgetting. uh, Hey, Ross. Great to be on. Great to have you. You've been instrumental in helping us do a lot of writing projects. Lately, we've been working on a new edition of Nori's White Paper, which the original White Paper was uh, an early project of, well, mine. I was in charge of editing (laughs) it and wrangling everyone and making sure all the input got in there in the correct way. And it is onerous. It is an onerous task, a thankless one, an unsexy one, dare I even say. (laughs) But uh, we've been working on this white paper together, and I think a lot smoother this time around.
0: And I think that's at least partially thanks to your expertise here. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that you feel like it's it's going more smoothly than the, the first rodeo. I've certainly enjoyed sinking my teeth in, and it's a good challenge to try and wrap your arms around documenting everything that goes into something like Nori's marketplace and Nori's products and Nori's methodology and making it all work together.
1: Yeah, I'm hoping even by the time we publish this, maybe the first two sections will be published, we should talk about that. But that would be a nice tie-in <laughs> for this show. But yeah, the first time we did it, I don't feel like the technology was around to do this in nearly as neat a way. But we've been using Gitbook for this time around, mm-hmm. which, is, which is much more like GitHub, which you know, you have repositories that you can update, make sense to software people. It's modular easier to do things in a modular fashion. Whereas the first white paper we did was a PDF, essentially a hundred something page PDF that a designer come in once the text was done to format everything. (laughs) And (laughs) it's like the stakes are so high. If you, yeah, a word was missing, it could mess up an entire block of text and you have to start over to fix it. If you want to say anything
0: new, you have to go back to the designer (laughs) You find yourself like changing the way that you describe things in order to make the paragraph fit well on the page as opposed to saying things the way that you want to. God, I don't think I ever had to do that, but it
1: wouldn't have surprised (laughs) me if I did have to do that. I think I've kind of blocked those memories out. It was a a really hard project where you have uh, multiple people at Nori and I think some outsiders from Nori too, contributing their knowledge, pulling stuff from other sources, trying to make what one hopes is a canonical document of Nori's thinking at a given moment in time. And now we're trying to do this again, but in a way that's easily updatable and modular and less pressure and less design obsessed
0: too. Mm. It lends itself well to the idea that everything that Nori or many of the things Nori does at least like will change over time and probably will evolve. And I was talking with another carbon removal company recently and they had just put out what they called kind of like a proto protocol where it's an explicit acknowledgement that these things are open for review and comment and discussion and that that's welcomed. It's not intended to, it is intended to be, as you said, a really one-stop shop resource to learn everything about Nori and and what Nori, Nori's perspective on carbon markets in the world, but that those things are growing and evolving at the same time.
1: I wonder how many resources like this even get produced by companies these days. White papers, certainly the Bitcoin white paper was probably the first one in the industry standard setter for Mm -hmm. everything that came out of crypto afterwards. So there's definitely part of that. Okay, I'm gonna like reveal a lot about Nori's marketing woes and struggles here, (laughs) but we have so much good content, I would say. I'm not even talking about the stuff that I'm really involved in though. I'd like to think it's included in that category. But we have so many articles and blogs and landing pages. And if you're trying to design the information architecture of a website so that people can, the person you want to find a thing will find the thing without having to wade through too much or be so dedicated to consuming all of your info that you've ever produced since the beginning of time, (laughs) how do you arrange things? And we're at this point where we're like, how many pages do we have that are functionally orphaned that we spent a lot of time on that are great assets, but get seen by seven people. And I guess the hope is that a white paper has the knowledge that you need to have well organized. And even if there's other pages that are better for certain things, is this kind of like the kitchen sink where mostly everything lives? I don't know, is that how you think about it or is that the wrong way to
0: understand this document? I do think about it in that way. And I think the job has in many ways been, as you said, Myself sinking back into what Nori's published in the past and curating the most relevant pieces of it, or at least making sure that th- those perspectives are integrated. And then also, you know, linking out to documents that can still live on their own and are pretty up to date. So, you know, even I've still been discovering stuff from Nori that I didn't know existed, but that is great. So it speaks to your point about these things aren't always easy to discover on a white paper, but yeah, now trying to bring it into in together in a doc that represents it, or at the minimum gives people a jumping off point to find that. So there is some re-architecting of the pathways as well that goes into it.
1: Yeah. I think one thing that's cool that definitely comes from the world of software development is you can also have changes tracked too. Mm -hmm. So something that might have been canonical at one point that we have since changed from because every company certainly must pivot and make changes you could say, oh, they used to think this way, but the change is tracked here. So you can see how our thought has grown and changed. But I'm describing a very small subset of people like the extreme nerds. <laughs> how many people are going to want to do that? I think people would like to know that a company is transparent and does do that. And it is available. How many people want to track changes through GitHub or Gitbook? I have <laughs> no idea.
0: But, but that is How the many intention. people read all of Charm's protocol? I don't know, or, or just glad that there is an announcement about it.
1: Uh, I think if you read everything you were supposed to read in any sector, I don't know that you'd have time for doing anything else. So (laughs) it's nice that some things exist. And if you want to, you can check it out. But also you're making other types of assets too that hopefully are more accessible to the non-elite cadre of people who will consume literally every single document you've ever produced and want desperately to
0: be an insider at Nori or Charm or anywhere else. Right. And that speaks to the importance of Including those levels of depth within the same document, right? Like a white paper should have a lot of deep granularity, but it should also have an FAQ section that's, you know, people can navigate to first. If they're like, I only have 15 minutes for this, let me find the section that distills the questions I might have.
1: I've started and I have no idea when I'm going to finish this because I've been too busy to read too much lately, but I started reading Balaji Srinivasan's The Network State review. Have you cracked that one or,
0: or? I have the PDF on my computer and I have not yet started it, but I intend to, intend to read some of it. I Probably a, not all of it, to be honest.
1: I, t- I took a picture from, I think the first page, but he says, I've created a one sentence, one page, one essay and one book about why we should be looking at network states and what what these like virtual opt-in governance structures might look like for the future and with regard to the nation state and how things will change, it's like that's such a. I, I posted it in the marketing channel. Nori, I'm like this is brilliant because <laughs> we should do that. We <laughs> should do that. Like, what is one sentence for Nori? What is one paragraph? What is one page? And then what is like the entire thing? It's the white paper surely the whole thing. The light paper like that. Maybe the essay, a paragraph and a sentence. Yeah, we've been trying to hire a head of brand marketing and communications, which if you're listening, and you have a background, both at startups, but also at uh, large companies that maybe you've seen them grow from a smaller company to a larger one. We're still looking for someone like this as of this recording in August 18th, 2022. This is one of the reasons I well, it is the reason I brought this up. I was trying to hire this person is we're we all have different stories we tell about Nori about what we think is most important or what we see as the innovation or the changes we're trying to bring to carbon removal or anything else. And I'm not really sure that the best story, and a lot of it depends on the audience, but I'm not sure that we have um, the most coherent story across every audience group. And it also depends on which Nori not you're talking about. And if you're one of the more recent hires, it's probably even harder for you to explain all of the things that we touch and, and why and why we think that the way that we do so there's a lot of difficult communications problems that are not just talking to the external world but also just how do you bring people into a culture where they understand the mission and also not know more than they really need to i've certainly been in meetings where i'm like yeah i don't need to know this, this... <laughs> how do you use a sauna? i don't care i don't need i don't need that info <laughs> not for me not for me so like trying to find like the, the correct amount of information and when to be to be useful. Anyways, I love that that strategy. So hiring someone like that, we're trying to figure out better ways to tell stories. And if you're listening here, you probably can tell it's really important to us. So much of what we mm. do is communications oriented. We poached you or quasi poached you because I always I feel like I've I've said this compliment to your face and behind your back so many times, but <laughs> you're like, you're one of the most successful synthesizers of large amounts of information. And yeah, learning it, and then reading it back in a way that has repackaged it in a way that might actually be useful, and especially for someone who is too busy, maybe to be reading all that source material oneself. I often and Paul, especially I think Paul is probably your your biggest fan. I don't know if you agree with that. But
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I appreciate you saying that. And uh you know, there's other great synthesizers out there, but I won't try to downplay the, the compliment. I do think that has been, I've realized that about myself in reflecting on how I learn about things. Like one of the ways that I do enjoy learning about things is automatically taking the step of reading or listening to something, but then also regurgitating it in written form for myself. And ultimately, ideally for other people to see if, a, I understand it well enough to write about it concisely and clearly and test that with other folks. And that's kind of how I've gotten to the place that I am writing about Nori and writing about other climate technologies as well. So seemingly, communications is something that you think is pretty important
1: that is maybe under in climate tech. I don't know. Do you actually even think that?
0: Yeah, I do think that. I, it would be hard for me to quantify, but I did see a pretty interesting tweet from, uh, I forget who. So I'm not going to be able to credit them live, but they said something to the effect of they think that climate media or content or journalism or communications is the most high impact but underinvested, one of the more high impact but underinvested sectors within within climate. And we're starting to see some more kind of traditional venture fundrais fundraisers like flow into companies that do communications work. Peak Action is one example. They make really stellar micro documentaries on climate tech companies, but I think there's a lot more room for people to be playing the communications role that is so vital to scaling a lot of solutions and convincing folks to invest in, in it, whether with their money or their time. Is that why it's considered undervalued? Is that
1: there are solutions or companies that need funding and comms as a way of driving more money into the sector? Is that is that the primary way it's measured or... Something else? How, do, how
0: does one even know that? I would say that would be one way, but also just looking at the sheer number of climate tech startups that perhaps like, you know, Nori has grown up in the past three years in terms of how it tells its own story and how impactful that is to, you know, finding customers or folks to work for you. Like, there's a lot of companies that need that help. Because telling your story as a climate tech startup shouldn't be, it shouldn't be hard to convince people why it's important, but it can be complicated for folks that are coming at it from, you know, a more scientific discipline or not necessarily people that fancy themselves as born communicators. So especially like pre-seed and seed stage companies that don't have a ton of money yet to hire folks to help them with that type of stuff. And they're probably focusing on, you know, real hardware engineering problems. Like how do you, how do you make time or find the money or hire the right person to tackle some of the same communications challenges that Nori's trying to trying to work through. We recently hired a new senior marketing manager named Heidi,
1: who's been uh, fantastic. But she's saying many of the companies that she's worked with in the past, their problem is that they don't have any content and they have to find a way to jury rig something <laughs> that is halfway useful to anyone. They're like, all right, content marketing is a big deal. What can we say that will actually be worth hundred shares on facebook right and our problem is is the opposite end of the telescope we're like (laughs) if it's like thousands of hours of audio and so many pages and so much content and now there's memes now there's memes (laughs) to keep track of too i'm sure that's
0: all anyone wants now
1: yeah i was talking on some other show i think that people either want like really long-form stuff they're like they want 20 hours a week with joe rogan or they want (laughs) a meme and nothing in between (laughs)
0: Right. And even the way that some of the platforms where people find get their distribution from, like you can see things like the Twitter algorithm change in real time. Like threads were such a big thing for a while and still are in some capacity. But like, as someone who is also trying to grow his own Twitter audience, like myself and people I talk to about it, like it seems like it's already moving past the threads now and wants like witty memes and one liners. And yeah, it evolves with the people's taste and the people's desire. I love the idea of prioritizing memes
1: that's cool i like that when i look the idea of prioritizing snappy one-liners on twitter sounds terrible that's like the thing <laughs> i hate most about twitter is the i don't know who needs to hear this but blank 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 i'm like cool can we re- yeah can we retire this like snarky insufficient takedown?
0: yeah <laughs> yeah that's a whole nother can of worms is social media friend or foe but uh <laughs> we try to use it in good ways to talk about things that are important.
1: Yeah. Or I feel like we try to use it, at least for the the memory as some sort of relief from, you know, doom scrolling and also community building and having a culture and just sort of, I don't know. I feel like there's a great, um God, what is that movie called? I always forget it because it's so close to Gulliver's Travels. called Sullivan's Travels. Have you ever seen this movie from the 40s? I haven't. It's about this film director who very much wants to create like a film about poverty. He like wants to make, he, he's like a sort of popcorn Hollywood director making like hmm. uh, swords and sandals, like big movies and like whatever. And he wants to make something serious about, yeah, the economy. And he goes on <laughs> this, he goes on these travels. He goes on, on a mission to like find the common man and all the, all the common men and women he meet. They basically say, like, hey, our lives are not that good. Enjoying your comedies or your adventures were the things that took us away <laughs> from our hard lives. Like, you've, you've shorted us, essentially, <laughs> by refusing to entertain us. And now you're trying to direct the spotlight back upon our suffering. We're trying right. to avoid it a little bit. We had relief for 90 minutes in the theater.
0: Thanks after, a lot.
1: Yeah. So I feel like there's at least part of that that's operating here, too, trying to morale building. I don't know. Right. I feel like, and, and
0: make it accessible to other folks, too, because, you know, otherwise it could just be really serious and scientific and economic all the time with respect to something like carbon removal.
1: Yeah. And I think a big part of it is just trying to make uh some of these ones that are kind of in-groupy, trying to attract people from outside to be like, there's something funny about this. There's something interesting, but I need to learn more so I can be in the club. Like, <laughs> yeah.
0: suddenly, something is happening here, but I don't know quite what it is. I think That's yeah. a quote from a Bob Dylan song, but I forget which one.
1: I think it's stop hey. What's that sound? Everybody look what's Is that, that's that a, does, yeah. <laughs> something happened in here.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't sing a lot on the show, Nick. Why did you do that to me? Why did you we're do... not even in the recording studio? We're not even. we got fancy. So that's our next hour-long session.
1: Yeah, I kinda of, I actually went into the show not wanting to bring up the memes because we've done so many things lately that are either directly about comedy <laughs> and meme making or touch on it. And then of course, I'm like, well, back to me and all things about me and being self-involved. Here you go. Meming maybe.
0: about meming.
1: Yeah. I can't even... The zeitgeist. The zeitgeist. Yeah. Well, I want to tell people about Keep Cool. Give people a chance to follow your amazing work chronicling climate tech. And also just, you have such a great vantage point on everything that's happening in this space. You've been covering a lot of carbon removal. You've been podcasting with people in the carbon removal space recently.
0: Hmm.
1: I'll just give you the floor. What's what's something that you're thinking about? What's uh what's an an area where you have active thinking happening?
0: Yeah, so there's a few. I mean, one big one that's a bit more broad is you know we've just had the Inflation Reduction Act pass in the U.S. and kind of that's fantastic and really came out of the blue a few weeks ago. Folks thought that kind of big government legislation was was dead in the water for the next two years, but they managed to pull it together and. It includes $370 billion of funding for climate solutions, energy, even environmental justice. But the big question for me coming out of that is kind of like, what's next? You know, that was such a big surprise. So where else should we be attuning our attention on the policy front in other countries to make sure that this money actually gets deployed in ways and tracking like how that actually happens at the state and community level? So I think for the next five years, how the spending in the U S pans out. Whether it drives what people expect it to or what hurdles come up for companies that would want to use this capital or uh, see some sort of tailwind from it. Like that's going to be a big story for a long time. And I'm curious what comes next on that front. So that's one thing that I'm thinking of kind of in the big aperture of things that are happening in climate within, you know, carbon removal as an example of a specific industry. I think there's some really healthy tension between all of the demand side. Tailwinds that we've seen this year with a lot of people coming out raising money for venture firms to invest in carbon removal startups, coalitions of companies banding together to make advanced market commitments to buy carbon removal credits. But at the same time, you know, having a lot of really difficult hardware engineering challenges being taken on by these companies to scale supply, which is still really small, relatively speaking, or companies like Nori engaging with all the other questions that go along with increasing supply, like methodologies, verifying, reporting on carbon removal, engaging with stakeholders to scale nature-based solutions. So tracking how that evolves over the next years and trying to understand whether investors feel like you know, 10 years from now, this was a good use of their capital. Like That's a huge question for me, because if not, you run into problems of folks saying like, oh, let's not do that again with whatever technology is in its infancy in 10 years. Versus a scenario where it all works out really well and carbon removal scales to the point where it needs to.
1: That's pretty much what happened with the clean tech
0: bubble, right? Right. Um, So yeah, you know, I wouldn't say there's shades of that developing here because we don't know how it's going to pan out. We're all optimistic about how it's going to pan out, but trying to make sure that, you know, the way that folks report on this stuff is not overlooking the fact that, you know companies are still producing tens of thousands or perhaps hundreds of thousands of credits, not millions or tens of millions. I'm curious what will happen with the
1: funding. I, I hope it obviously all works out great and it helps scale an industry that would otherwise scale much more slowly. Right. I also wonder how much potential there is for something like Cylindra to replay, but in carbon removal, which I mean... Let's just assume for for a second that everything there was all above boards and was all fine. I don't, I don't even remember all the details of it, but it became right. such a political flashpoint that I wonder if anything similar. Do any carbon removal companies that we know now overpromise, underdeliver, and end up, you know, facing a uh, Republican-led campaign against them? Is that the future that we're we're looking for? Carbon <laughs> removal, Solyndra?
0: Yeah, no, it's an interesting question because it does remind me at least that, you know, if you're thinking about your impact as a business, how much CO2 you're moving out of the atmosphere is obviously one important quantification of that. But what you're contributing to the health of the industry in sometimes less quantifiable ways is also equally important.
1: Yeah, advanced market commitments are going to be an interesting one to track too. I'm very curious how that's going to play out too, but I'm wondering what it looks like when so many assets are bought so far ahead of time?
0: And what even that looks like and how that affects the shape of the market going forward? Yeah. And I think they do, there is one benefit, which is, you know, folks also try to kind of meet out the way that the commitments work over time, where it's not just like an off agreement that, you know, we're buying all these credits in 2022 and paying you for it now because If you schedule it over the course of, let's say, eight years out to 2030, that helps companies that are providing the credits. That's easier for someone to come in and underwrite it from like a debt financing perspective to say, oh, there is consistent revenue here. They're being paid for these credits in 2022 and 2023 and 2024 and 2025. So that's one other mechanism where it can be helpful. But I do hear what you're saying about, you know, from a supply perspective, there's already very little supply, high quality, quote unquote, carbon removal credits in the market. And a lot of the supply that's going to be created from now till 2020 or 2030 is already accounted for from folks that are banded together to make these advanced market commitments. So it could be supply constrained for a very long time as a result. Oh, man,
1: in some ways, it feels discouraging to me to even look at these numbers, though. They're like a billion
0: dollars buys you like a rounding error, five minutes of global warming or something like that. Yeah. I know I haven't done the math, but yeah fifty gigatons of greenhouse gas emissions annually globally versus perhaps a few hundred thousand removal credits or maybe a million
1: I mean i'm I'm certainly on team order of magnitude per annum per annum <laughs> let's just keep keep going but in some ways watching this happen, I feel... I can feel it. not not to contribute to the doom scrolling moments, but some that's the thing that I almost feel like most discourages me within carbon removal, which is weird because most people I think get most excited about seeing the money flowing in. But whenever yeah. I see those numbers in front of me, I go, Oh, good grief. This is such a do I have to edit this out? Is this gonna bum everyone out? Also, this is nothing badly being said about Frontier or anyone apart no, of totally or any not. company. Nothing I have nothing but respect for all of that, but Ouch, man. Like, are we going to be able to do that?
0: Do you think so? It's a great question. You know, solar is an example of, I think the photovoltaic cells and solar panels have in, and I don't even know exactly how folks measure their efficiency, but those have been improving at 34% compounding rates for 20 years now. And so something comparable is needed in carbon removal to get to some of the scales that, I don't know, like a body like the IPCC talks about and wanting to see the world remove 10 gigatons of CO2 from the atmosphere annually by 2050. So it's possible. And I think this year has been a big step in the right direction. And you need some of those demand signals to encourage people to work on this problem. But at the end of the day, it's not like building a software business where you can grow your revenue at crazy rates every year. You have to do real hardware engineering to remove CO2 out of the atmosphere and sequester it in the ground or deal with very complex natural systems to do so. Or both.
1: <laughs> or both. I, I do think that the software, and I'm combining software and financial infrastructure in one here, but I feel like some of those supportive technologies are actually going to be really
0: key. to oh, also super important, for sure, yeah.
1: Yeah, not to have my Nori chip on my shoulder, on my shoulder, too much on my shoulder, but I do feel like finding ways to trade between these assets in ways where, like we're really trying, we're gonna do an episode on this soon, I'm sure, but trying to get the tinier accounting right, and mm. using the right methodologies to make sure that you can compare 10 years against 10 years in a relatively credible, ethical way so that you could have a marketplace that goes beyond, you know, a couple dozen brand name providers of carbon mm. removals. Now, what happens in the near to medium term future where you do have companies that maybe you don't know their names, but are bringing industrial scale carbon mm. removal to bear and they need to move units rather than need to be like the critical darling. And how do you support that? I feel like that technology is really challenging, but sometimes I I feel like uh, this is the chip on the shoulder, just a tiny bit. It's like some of the things that technology feels a little bit undervalued relative to like, well, we're building the actual hardware that's
0: removing the carbon. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's a good push. Am I entitled to
1: to a little bit of that or no?
0: (laughs) You are because, I mean, you brought up the whole of aligning incentives and aligning on, the methodologies and the standards, like all of that. I mean, look at how messed up voluntary carbon markets have been historically. It's certainly no easy problem to solve either. So yeah, when I was talking about software companies, I was thinking about like your traditional SaaS public equity that performs really well on your retirement portfolio where I don't know, they make sales software. <laughs> I'm not discrediting the hard work that climate software companies do. I
1: mean, I sometimes catch whiffs of that myself too though, where we're so focused on supply being the, the bottleneck and, and supply being the problem. And we'll see companies start up within carbon removal. And it seems like the thesis is that the problem is that the buying side of carbon removal is too difficult. I do not think that is the case at all. One question I have though within software and climate tech too, it's like how many climate SaaS platforms am I expected to know about? I feel like I can't keep track of them. Or do you know anything about that space? Like who's competing with, with who and who's going to win? Is there going to be like dozens of these things or is, are a couple of them going to win out? What do you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, this betrays that I've spent more time thinking about companies tackling hardware solutions too. So perhaps I should be more mindful about that. But I mean, there's a whole bunch of challenges that software can be applicable to in climate, right? I mean, accounting for emissions is the first that comes to mind. And there's some players that I think already have a lot of brand recognition in that space and do work like Watershed is the one that I have this. The first email you get when you sign up for my Keep Cool email says, Hi, thanks for joining. Like, tell me about one company in the space that you're excited about. Or, you know, if you don't know about one, then you'll you'll learn about one soon. And I think Watershed is the most common answer that I've gotten. So wow, clearly they're doing something right. Yeah, um, but certainly not the only space where software is relevant to to climate, of course, like there's a lot being done with kind of like the internet of things and improving data sensing across all kinds of different things. And, you know, this is relevant to Nori when it comes to technologies that take up data from farms and soil. And I think that's a space that I do not know as much about. And then there's a lot of companies that are trying to tackle logistics problems, whether it's in something like shipping, where, you know, even just improving the efficiency of these giant freighter ships that across the world with all the stuff we order on Amazon like just increasing their route efficiency could reduce emissions significantly. So people are thinking about all kinds of issues like that where it's all interconnected and it all ties back to energy and that ties to emissions. So it almost sometimes I feel like my aperture is too wide of like is this like climate or are they really just trying to like save transportation companies money which you know could be both.
1: I saw a tweet recently that was arguing that there is an overrepresentation of software people in climate, and that is a bad thing. My take on it was basically that you have wealthy people with in-demand skills, they wanna do something that they believe matters, they moved over, this is the way that they do that, and that we actually don't need like the umpteeth platform. Hmm. By the way, all these criticisms can be levied at Nori too, so I'm not trying to pick on anyone here in, in particular. Is it like a case of when all you got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, but for software
0: uh, refugees or what is yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, the talent side of things is I'm definitely more constrained when it's companies looking for chemical engineers or mechanical engineers. But that said, like almost all of the companies that I talk to and get to know a little bit more deeply also frequently have open roles for software engineers. So I think it's good that those folks want to work in climate. I think it's
1: probably if you do have a engineering or hard sciences background I certainly think you can probably in some cases write your own ticket I'm just speculating but surely you
0: are in demand there's probably not that many people who can do what you can do Right totally yeah huge plug for anyone you know you might be working in you might be listening and working in oil and gas right now and you know in a weird twist of fate like your skills are super in demand <laughs> from a lot of these companies and coincidentally you have a job board which is not where I was leading
1: to but serendipitously go right
0: you have one but i would also plug other folks like there's a team climate base that has a great website and marketplace for jobs and and frankly like those are full stop the best places to start mm-hmm. my job board is curated by me because it's teams that i like that i know kind of well, and where I have a good relationship and I want to try and help find people for them because I think the work they're doing is great. But if you want a really wide aperture and really want to be able to like search and dig into a marketplace, then there's great places like Climate Base to do that.
1: Yeah. I've had Evan Hines on a number of times, but it has been nice. a minute. So yeah, Climate Base is great. Hi, Evan, if you're listening. <laughs> Hope you're doing well. If not, someone send this to Evan and tell him we said hello
0: and talked about him. Yeah. You're welcome for the, uh, for the, for the free plug. Yeah. Instead
1: of Nick promoting his own stuff, he downplayed his stuff and talked about yours. So be nice to Nick. Okay.
0: (laughs) He's a pal. Yeah. Come to keep cool for, you know, your entry point to learning about all kinds of different solutions, whether in written form and podcast form. And then we also, uh, when we think there are really compelling roles out there, we do privilege those at, at times as well. You had mentioned earlier you did want to talk something
1: about pragmatism and idealism within the climate space. I think you had some thoughts there. Why don't we, why don't we dig into that thorny uh, little thicket?
0: Yeah, I mean that is one of the more interesting kind of dividing lines that I feel like I find. There's super intelligent folks on both sides of the fault, and you know it's really this question of like how quickly is it possible to actually like decarbonize the world? Is this like a, you know, primary energy generation globally is still above 80% relying on fossil fuels. So, you know, what would it take to get that to 0%? And that informs a lot of the types of discussions that folks have. And if you were really thinking about things in terms of like a highest ROI on your dollar, like what types of solutions you invest in. And I think there's certain folks that You know, don't want to see a single new natural gas-fired peaker plant open anywhere in the world. But then there's other folks, you know, if I talk to grid operators, like their perspective on something like that is uh, that that's not exactly the most realistic thing in the world. So I think digging into that dichotomy is a very fruitful exercise for me when I go out to talk to other folks because, I don't know, it just sparks a lot of interesting conversation.
1: I've been working on a project... I don't want to reveal too much about it, but I think it's going to be a fun one when it gets released. And we were talking about some of the durability and permanence debates within carbon removal. And I feel like there's a lot of this going on in there mm. where there's a lot of, for lack of a better term, there's like a like a purist tendency towards wanting, you know, or I associate this with maybe like the, the carbon take back obligation. If you mobilize a ton of fossil carbon you should return it to the same type of sink from which it derived. So, sure. so comes out of the ground, comes out of a subterranean reservoir. You know, it should go back in there. So you should be capturing a ton and turning returning it to the lithosphere, and <laughs> which would make gas pretty expensive uh, proposition. Right. Though I'm I'm like pretty favorable towards being a little bit more pragmatic. I, I that to me strikes me as probably just, and there's an equation in there that it feels just, right? There's like an equality between the actions. So I get that and I respect it. I can also see the case, and I I lean more this way myself, that over the next century, our technology should and must develop at uh, intense speeds to catch up. So merely storing carbon dioxide somewhere out of the atmosphere or ocean for decades or a century is very valuable because during that time, We should. We need to figure out scalable and cheap, permanent carbon removal, and so that like hundred year or several decade time horizon is much more important to me than being able to go for hundreds or thousands of years. I don't even really care that much about that right now. Like it's, <laughs> right. it's like a nice to have, but I feel like my framing of this is favorable towards my own position, I guess. But like I'm being pragmatic. But there's also lots of potential for people to use the same line of argument for nefarious purposes that are much more greenwashing that Mm -hmm. are going to say, Oh, well, this also applies to avoided emissions in this way.
0: Yeah. If you take either side to its logical extreme, you run into some run into some problems. But I do very much align myself with this idea that, you know, if there's a lot of companies trying to make incremental improvements, the amount of learning that comes out of that is one of the more valuable things. So whatever motivation. Results in people trying a lot of things within reason, and then making improvements on it and testing and iterating. That's kind of where where I'm putting my chips. The cumulative
1: effects of many smaller, dispersed changes. That's that's what you think is going to
0: get us there over a yeah, century. Yeah, or part of part of what. And you know, some of these swings have to be big swings. Like there do have to be companies that are trying to figure out gigantic scales. But for example, if you're waiting to have 100% scientific certainty about how something's going to play out in a natural ecosystem like that is going to take a long time versus maybe doing small tests, like the stuff that you'll learn from doing it in the field versus hypothesizing about it on paper or in the lab, like that's a very different experience.
1: Yeah, I feel this way, being very concerned with the forever chemicals, as they're sometimes called, where these do not exist in nature chemicals that get released. Mm-hmm. Pretty spooky. But also, I find people often use the precautionary principle to argue against them. And I find that principle to like so favor inaction as to make many of the changes necessary and
0: possible. Right. So, basically, no
1: one likes me, essentially. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. We're probably not making, certainly not making everyone our friend by discussing some of this stuff, but that's okay too.
1: Speaking of, uh, I saw you cover nuclear energy recently. What's been going on there? I saw there's an interesting thing about fusion that just happened. Have you been tracking nuclear much?
0: Yeah, I keep my eye on that for sure. That's another big fault line in climate debates. Yeah. There's some people that are like so dogmatic about nuclear that they're like, we don't need to develop wind and solar technologies at all. Like, we could just, you know, this could be 100% of the electricity wow. that we need. Where do you see that? Which,
1: I, don't think I don't think I've ever seen
0: that. There's some folks I see on Twitter that, uh, they, I think they mostly take it because they like to, to hate on renewables. Who's paying their checks? I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening geopolitically around the world where, you know, everything that's happened in Europe this year with Russian invasion of Ukraine, like that's obviously put a lot of strain on European grids and has had and other, not just European grids, but it has caused countries like Germany and Japan, where there's traditionally been a lot of hesitation and fear of nuclear energy to, At least keep some of their existing reactors open longer. So that's an interesting development. My mom's from Germany and says that like this was the first year on social media where she actually saw like it used to all just be like kind of more 1970s environmental style folks, environmentalist style folks saying like, we can't have nuclear energy in our country. But now she's like the sentiment out there has definitely shifted from her vantage point. And then on the tech side, a lot of companies getting a lot of funding to try and build smaller reactors that are easier to build and easier to deploy. Yeah, I think my holistic perspective on it is like this plays a role in a diversified mix of energy sources. And it has since 1950, but probably shouldn't have taken our foot off the gas as a as a collective world unit sometime around the 90s and 2000s because kind of like the number of operational reactors flatlined around then. But nuclear energy has already displaced a lot of fossil fuel use over the course of the last 70 years and could continue to do so for the next 70.
1: I don't think I've ever said this on the podcast before, but I said it privately to a friend of mine recently. And there was like gasps of, how could you? <laughs> I drove to eastern Washington a few months ago and there's lots of wind out there. Mm. And it's so ugly. <laughs> I find it to be like I find it to be repulsive and if I think that and I think it's important I can't imagine what the average person thinks So I think like a lot of these fights over renewables um, there are some places where seemingly it's politically popular despite being in a conservative area like I've seen solar in Texas um, is often surprisingly popular and things like mm. that. I would like a smaller footprint of a nuclear facility, I think, too. If you look at all the land that would be required and, and like oceanfront property that would be required to do a lot of the classical renewables, I think right. those fights are going to be ugly. So I think in some ways nuclear might end up being the less controversial option once, once people see how much of a footprint renewables might actually take. Which is a crazy sentence to say. And also, I'm I'm speculating wildly. I have no idea if that's
0: actually true or not. That's just me spitballing. But is there anything to that? Well, yeah. I mean, this year, we've seen the shift start, perhaps. And if there's momentum to it, maybe it will get to a point where, you know, I think for the last 10 years, nuclear has been on the back foot significantly. Public sentiment since Fukushima. And maybe the next 10 years will look different. And then fusion is the wild card where it's like, this isn't going to be producing electricity at scale for ten or twenty years. There's a joke about nuclear fusion that's my dad told me about, so it's definitely been around for a while. Which is that nuclear fusion is always twenty years away. Uh, it Doesn't matter when you when you say the joke, but um, there have been some breakthroughs in kind of self-sustaining reactions of late in a lab setting, which is encouraging. But you know that one's one that I kind of watch with with interest as opposed to concrete optimism for now. You've been hurt too many times. <laughs> Other people have. I'm fresh enough to, to still have belief. But yeah, people have been talking about that since God knows when. So it'd be cool if it does pan out.
1: Oh, yeah, it certainly would be. I have a lot of hope for that, too. I don't even know how we are supposed to make the transition without it. Surely people have run the numbers of this, but does it make sense without nuclear even?
0: You need some type of firm power source, whether that's nuclear fission or, you know, for a long time, it'll probably still be a lot of natural gas, which is not as emissions intensive as coal, but certainly still produces carbon emissions. And there's problems with methane leaks along the whole supply chain. But yeah, it could be a mix of fission and fusion. It could be, you know, if someone really cracks like deep geothermal, that's one possibility. It'll probably be a mix of a lot of these things. But yeah, there's, in my opinion, there's some people that conversely argue that you can do 100% renewables, and there's new studies on that out of Stanford recently that I haven't read yet, but intend to. But I, again, more pragmatically, definitely think you'll need a non-renew, quote unquote, non-renewable power, firm power source in there. Fission, I say, is like not technically renewable because you know there is a finite amount of uranium and plutonium and all that in the world. I read a book recently; it might interest you
1: too, called. How this title is so clickbaity, but it's a pretty good book. The End of the World is Just the Beginning. I think it's the name of it. <laughs> Peter, Peter Zihan. Do you know him? I haven't, a, like, I haven't geo, come across that. Geopolitical consultant, but he's pretty skeptical of renewables for a number of reasons. But one of which is that I've seen this claim recently about, especially with Russia and Germany that um, renewables would have avoided this problem. But renewables basically makes us extremely reliant on places like Central Africa and getting rare earth from there. And also China is where many rare earth minerals come from. And almost all of the aluminum that we need comes from China as well. So you can already see movement about Taiwan and semiconductors and the CHIPS Act. Worried about losing access to that? Can you imagine being entirely dependent upon <laughs> renewables for China? It would not be any better than being dependent upon Russia for natural gas. Um, yeah.
0: The onshoring of a lot of these supply chains, at least to an extent, whether it's solar panels or you're right, kind of production of batteries, like that's definitely going to be an interesting open question in years to come. I don't fancy myself as. The world's greatest geopolitical analyst, but I find those things interesting for sure. And I think the metals required for batteries and a lot of these technologies is an interesting question because you do also get that refrain from folks that kind of like naysayers of renewable energy a lot. Like that's a pretty common refrain. Sure. I think there's good examples of being able to engineer your way out of constraints. Like cobalt is a common example of something that folks focus on. It's mind you know 70% or something like that comes from the congo there's often a lot of horrific human rights abuses at some of these mines so there's you know a lot of justification behind concerns about like do our evs need a lot of cobalt but i think this year like vehicle manufacturers like aren't stupid they recognize this stuff and i think like half of tesla's cars that they've sold this year are produced with batteries that no longer require cobalt so folks find solutions to these things if not right away, and I'm thinking about Germany's natural gas problem at present, but like I think in in some ways it can be a good catalyst for innovation.
1: I think you're right, and I
0: hope you're right, too. <laughs> I think just people maybe
1: oversold that story of renewables sure. would have gotten us into this problem. I it wouldn't sure. have gotten in, into this particular problem, but it introduces... Although this having dependencies upon other countries, like the fact that we bought Russian oil and gas, the West bought wasn't the right way to say it. They probably wouldn't like that. Is the fact that Europe, they probably don't like that either. They consider themselves (laughs) part of Europe. Is the fact that the EU bought (laughs) Russian oil and gas, did that prevent war from happening sooner, potentially? Like the fact that our economies were intertwined and it caused such hardship for them. I think they've rebounded some since, but do you think the fact that we were such serious trading partners prevented more overt types of conflict? Like if we were less reliant upon Chinese... Exports now for the United States would conflict be for like uh, world hegemon status be greater? Yeah, is it?
0: Yeah, it's a conflict? really interesting. It's a really interesting question. The Russian gas one in particular. Like, I can see your perspective, but I also feel like the decision to invade Ukraine came at a time when natural gas prices were already very high and Europe's dependency mm-hmm. or the cost of action against Russia in Perhaps in Putin's calculation, he was like, these folks don't have another option right now. Like there's already energy shortages, and we just went through a winter where electricity got really expensive. Like that might have also been part of the calculus, is like this is the moment to pursue some action because we've just had a display of what happens if you try and go without high valuable gas. I don't know.
1: Interesting. Yeah, that's a good counter too. Yeah.
0: Dependency, you know, if these economies were more independent from an energy production perspective, yeah, maybe Russia would be like, all right, we got nothing to lose. And that's one option. Or they would feel like they don't have as much
1: leverage. Or they just don't care because the thing that they want is so valuable that they will trade basically anything for it. So (laughs) I'm going to come back on this podcast every week because we get to talk about all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. I have to sign off here too. (laughs) Hey, normally we end it one question after I ask the worst question of the show, and then you know for certain it's time to go <laughs> home. And today we can put a pin in it ahead of that moment. So how about that, Nick? Sure. It sounds good. Anything you want to plug? You have your, your Twitter, Keep Cool, the newsletter, podcast. Why don't you tell people where to find you?
0: Yeah. The best place to find the Keep Cool newsletter is on workweek.com. That is my parent company that I work for. And you'll find the Climate Tech Vertical on their website. Or you can just Google Keep Cool and "work week" in the same search and you'll find it. And "work week is, is one word. And then, yeah, find me on Twitter, Nick Van Osdall. No spaces, obviously, in my handle. And uh, I like to tweet memes, but also serious takes about climate tech on there. And yeah, I look forward to connecting with folks.
1: Great. Links to all those things are in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Nick. Thank you, Ross. It's been fun. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Send this to a friend. Go subscribe to Nick's newsletter, Keep Cool. Thanks for being a fan of the show, give us a great rating and review, as you probably already know to do if you've heard this sign off more than once, which surely you all have, unless you've fallen asleep at this point. It's pretty late in the show to be telling people what to do. But that's how calls to action work. Anyways, thanks for listening. Have a lovely day and goodbye for now. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.